Start a new series on the book of Judges, and actually for the next year, for the rest of this year, 2017, we'll be in the Old Testament. We're going to do a series on Judges this summer. In the fall, I'm going to start a new series that will start in Genesis and go all the way to the birth of Jesus on Christmas, looking all the highlights of this redemptive story of the Old Testament. I'm really excited. We have a lot of new believers in here, new Christians. Uh, this nec- these next six months are going to give you a great big picture of what the Bible is. I think it'll be excellent for you. But this summer will be in the book of Judges. Um, and, and in order to understand what's going on in the book of Judges, we have to understand how the Bible gets us to Judges, which is why I'd like you to go to the table of contents. I've been studying for this series for several weeks now. The one thing I've taken away is I wish I would have paid attention in world history class back in high school. Now all of my teachers were coaches and they gave us worksheets to do, so I probably didn't have a chance. But I spent my last three years relearning world history to understand what's going on in the time period of the book of Judges. So in your table of contents, you look at the, the first book of the Bible is Genesis. And what happens in Genesis, we have the record in the first couple of chapters of God creating the world. And God creates it and it's good. He creates it after himself. And within a couple of chapters, things go bad. And Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God and his creation and, and choose sin. And sin comes into the world in the, in the uh, beginning of Genesis, and it corrupts everything. It changes everything. And the world goes really bad. And so uh, the, the first handful of chapters of Genesis kind of shows how sin just infects the entire world, engulfs the entire world, and things go bad. Eventually, in Genesis, God starts over. He wipes things out with the flood, starts over with one group of people. But again, it goes bad very quickly. And hundreds and hundreds of years pass And eventually we come in Genesis chapter 12 to a man named Abraham. Now, here's what we have to know. There's misconceptions. Abraham wasn't a God follower. Well, he was. He was a little God follower. He was fitting in with that time period, which is you had hundreds of gods. You just worship whichever one. And so our God reveals himself to Abraham. We don't know what that looks like. But he comes to Abraham and says, actually his name's Abram. I'm going to start something in you that's going to change everything. And he gives them some promises, and that's in Genesis chapter 12. He makes a covenant with him that you're going to have a son. Right now, Abraham doesn't have a son. Out of this son will come a nation. You'll have land, and out of this nation, this land, will come someone that's going to fix this thing, that's going to bless it and change the entire world. So we find that, and, and the promise comes true, and in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has a son named Isaac. And if you remember the story, he takes Isaac up on a mountain and, and almost sacrifices him. And then you go to chapter 25, Isaac has a son, after lots of counseling, working through his dad almost killed him, he has a son, and Genesis chapter 25, named Jacob. Now, Jacob has 12 sons, right? One of those has a really nice coat, little jacket, has a few colors on it, and his brothers get really, um, get really jealous of him, and so they, they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Eventually, there's a famine in the land. The brothers um, go to Egypt to look for food. In the meantime, Joseph has risen up, and has become the second highest in command in Egypt. Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world. And so at the end of Genesis, you have all of these 12 brothers, remember this, what would turn into a nation, Israel, going to Egypt. And that's how Genesis starts to wrap up. And and over the next hundreds of years, I think 400 years, you have this group of people, this nation start to grow. 
And eventually, another king comes into power. And if you're a dominating power in this day and you have a group of people in your kingdom that is growing and growing and growing, what is the fear? The fear is that they would rise up and overtake you. So he decides to make them slaves and oppresses them. And these people have this promise of God to Abraham, and they start calling out to God, and God comes, and he sends a deliverer. And if you move in your table of contents to Exodus, 430 years after they've been to Egypt, Moses comes along, and he delivers the people out of Egypt. And the book of Exodus follows this, and it follows all the plagues that came on Egypt. And Moses leads the people out across the sea into this land that God had promised them. Now, as they go into the, they cross the Red Sea, and, and think about it, these people have this miracle played out right in front of them. They cross the Red Sea, and you would think, okay, here we go. This is going to play out great, but it goes really bad for them. And they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, if you keep going to your table of contents, you get to the book of Leviticus. This takes place during that time of wandering. And Moses is a leader during this time. And, and the Israelites camp out by Mount Sinai, and, and Abraham, or I'm sorry, Moses goes up and receives the Ten Commandments. And during this time of Leviticus, we have the institution of the sacrifice system, or the priest system. So what happens to this group of people that God said, I will be your people, you'll, uh, or you will be my people, I will be your God. God sets up priests, and the job of the priest was to intercede between the people and God. And as the people sinned, the priests would offer sacrifice. And the book of Leviticus is all about this system of sacrifice and priest. And it's during this time, this 40 years of wandering. You move on to the book of Numbers in your table of contents. They're on a journey to the promised land. That During this time, they take a census, which is why it's called the book of Numbers. But the people start complaining. They complain because they're hungry and they're tired of walking and they're tired of wandering. They even wish to go back to Egypt. During this time, in number, Moses sends out 12 spies because God had said, I have this land for you, this promised land. It's yours. We've got to go get it. So Moses sends out 12 spies. They come back. <clears throat> Ten of them say, yeah, we can take it. Or we, we, I'm sorry, two of them say, yeah, we can do this. Ten of them say, no, the people are too big. And during this time, the book of Numbers, the people uprise. They tried to overthrow Moses. They want to go back. They disobey God. And because of that, God curses that generation and says, you will not enter the promised land. And so that generation wanders around in the wilderness until that generation dies off. We get into the book of Deuteronomy. And the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy is Moses telling this story to the people, a new generation of people. He's telling the story of God's faithfulness of leading them out of Egypt and how God has taken care of them. That's the first 11 chapter speeches to the people. In Deuteronomy, he gives this command that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. He warns the people, follow the Lord, don't turn away. From Deuteronomy, we go to the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is the story of this people going to take this land that God had promised them. So they have this promised land. The only thing is there's people living in that. And God's command was to drive those people out and overtake this land, which we'll look at today. And then after the book of Joshua is where we get to Judges. And that's where we're going to be in the rest of the year. Now, to understand Judges, we're actually going to go to the book of Deuteronomy today, chapter 7. Try to understand this book and understand what God is doing 
So in the book of Joshua, God provided victory for the Israelites over their enemies. Now the call as they had victory was not just to, to win battles, but to occupy land. Now, in order to understand why God said that, why the call, the call was to occupy land, we have to go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's go verse 1. And it's going to lead us into our understanding of Judges. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, by the way, I'm bilingual and I mispronounce words in every language. So, um, the Hittites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, this is important, you must devote them to complete destruction. You must make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not eat or shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus says, but, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their sherem and burn their carved images with fire. Now, let's try to understand some context here. God has told the people, I have a land for you, but there's people there. And so God's command to them is not just to go into the land and find a little place where some of those people aren't and take up residence. His command is to go into the land and drive the people out. Now, we have to put ourselves in the place of the Israelites. They have been wandering in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years, camping for 40 years. They have this promised land that they know that God's given. They sent spies in the land that came back and was like, guys, you have no idea how, how great this land is. It's rich in soil and in minerals and there's, there's food and it's flowing with milk and honey. Like this is the greatest land ever, ever. Now, God said it is, God drive the people out. But if you're an Israelite, we got to think for a second. If we drive people out and go to battle and destroy, we're going to tear down some of the systems, the infrastructure, the culture that they had in place. It might appear easier just to kind of blend in. Remember, the, the call of God is we got to drive them out. we gotta, we got to destroy them, kick them out. But if you're an Israelite, you're wandering the desert for the wilderness for 40 years, and all of a sudden you come across a city with food and crops and restrooms. And that city looks pretty good. Now, we could go to battle against the city, but what are we going to do when we go to battle? We're going to destroy it. I mean, you go to the city, and there's theater, and there's music, and there's culture, there's restaurants. And so the Israelites, to them, it all looked pretty good. It's not hard to see why they wouldn't want to drive the people out, why it might be easier just to mix in with them. But remember, the call of God is to drive them out. Here's the question, why? 
I think if we could hop in a time machine and we could go back to that, that, that little group of people that God had told them, go into the land and, and drive the people out and overthrow it. If we could go to them and we could load them up in our time machine and go forward several hundred years and have them look back, they might say, oh, but they don't have a time machine. And they're looking over here at this land and they see this culture and people and cities and they're like, wow, that looks pretty good. Why would God tell us to drive these people out? See, there's this crisis of belief for Israel and it's ours also. Do I trust God? Why God? I mean, these cities are beautiful. Why, why would you have, do I trust God? Don't marry the parasite women, parasite, what are they called? I'll, I'll use a different one. Canaanite women, parasite women. <laughs> Don't marry the Canaanite women. But God, like the Canaanite women are good looking. Like what's the big deal? Why God? Here's what every one of us have to th- have to think about what do we believe about God? Do we believe God is a giver of good things or do we believe God is someone who requires our obedience because he likes to watch us suffer? Every decision we make comes down to what we believe about God. Do I see that God is a giver? When God gives this command to the people to drive the people out and destroy, is God, is his motivation a giver? So God's command, wipe out your enemies, totally destroy them. Now we can't skip over that. Because for some of, us, some of us, this sounds something right out of ISIS. Why would God tell them to drive a people out and destroy a group of people? Here's what we have to know about God, that he has perspective. God knows the environment that the Israelites were moving into. And we have to reorder our thinking. We're thinking, we can oftentimes approach the Bible from a contemporary mindset and kind of think about it in today's terms. We have to understand the environment these people are entering to understand why God would say drive them out. Remember the goal of them overtaking the land is not moral cleansing or ethnic cleansing, religious cleansing, ethnic cleansing. It's not about power. It's not about ruling the whole world. The goal of them overtaking land is for God to create a nation that has a land for one day to send Jesus to save the world. That's the goal of them having that land. So it's not just like the goal is to kill all the people we don't like. But we have to understand because God knew the environment they're going to enter. When we talk about the ancient world, we have to understand it's a totally different context. So this group, these group of people, all these ites that live in this land, they are worshipers of idols. They have gods for everything you can imagine. One of their gods is a god named Baal. One of the prominent ways that they worship this god was through sexualized practices. So one of the ways you would worship this god of Baal is you would go to the temple, there'd be prostitutes there, and that you would take part in that as part of your worship to God. This practice allowed them to combine sexual pleasure with worship, which would have been very attractive to the Israelite men. God knows the environment they're going to enter. Part of the sacrifice, and I have to be careful we have a family gathering today, part of the environment they're getting ready to enter is one where in worship they would offer their youngest 
to their gods in sacrifice. So what we can't get in our head is there's this nice little group of people just doing their little thing and God says, go kill them and drive them out. What we have to understand is the climate in which the people are getting ready to enter and how wicked it is. Now, I'm not saying the Israelites are better. We'll get to that in a second. But God in his wisdom sees the environment they're getting ready to enter. And he says, if this is going to be a people that I covenant with and Jesus is going to come out of, we've got to deal with what's going on here. Now, God allows in Joshua and Judges what he forbids in the rest of the Bible. So none of us can get a word from God today that tells us we need to go drive all the Cubs fans out of Missouri as much as we would like to. Because that's not the call of God. This is not about driving out people we don't like. This is not about, about ethnic cleansing. This is about God creating a land for a group of people that he can send Jesus. Now, as a contemporary reader, we must caution us on taking the moral high ground. We're going to read some stories in Judges. And if you've ever read the book of Joshua, we're going to read some stories. And it would be very easy for us to say, oh. I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe God would tell them, I can't believe God would tell them to drive people out. Now, again, hop on our time machine and go back to that day and time. To drive someone out of their land and to kill them all was common practice. So as the Israelites are doing this, the other nations are not going around thinking, oh my gosh, can you believe what the Israelites did? They have no idea what human sanctity of life is. No, here's what they're saying. Yep, that's how you do it. We are a culture greatly influenced by the Ten Commandments. So, for example, around our world, it's commonly agreed, outside from a few not, like crazy people, that killing is a bad idea. Fair? Like, don't murder. That's, that's a common thing. It's commonly agreed throughout our world that stealing is not for the better of society. Here's the deal. We're in a day and time where the Ten Commandments are brand new. They do not influence culture. Murder and stealing, that's what you do. So caution us on trying to take our society and put it there and then try to make sense of what God is doing. During this time, the goal of warfare was not to go in and, and, and win a battle and sign a peace treaty. That was not how they did warfare back then. The goal of war, warfare in this day was to destroy your enemy. Absolute destruction. So the Israelites are allowed to do what we are not, but the Israelites are also not allowed to follow the normal pattern for that day. The normal pattern for that day, you go to a city, you destroy it, you kill all the men, you take care of the young men, make them eunuchs and servants, and you take all the women for yourself. That's what happened during those days in battle, and God forbids that. And I was trying to research this and understand, I had to get my head around what the day and time, what the culture was like during these times. I came across a story of a, a Syrian army led by a general called Ashurbanipal, and he crushed the turrets, so they, they rule this area called Elam. And Elam has this uprising, and so Ashurbanipal sends his 
army in to kind of crush this rebellion of this city that they, that they have this, that they own their territory. And he writes about, this general writes about how he defeated them in battle. And I, and I pulled out a selection of this because we have to understand the mindset in those days to understand what's going on in Israel. Here's what Ashurbanipal, leader of Assyria, describes how he defeats his enemy, the districts of Elam. Here's what he says. For a distance of one month and 25 days march, I devastated the districts of Elam. I spread salt and thorn bush there to injure the soil. Sons of the kings, sisters of the kings, members of Elam's royal family, young and old, governors, knights, artisans, as many as there were, inhabitants, male and female, big and little, horses, mules, asses, flocks, herds, more numerous than a swarm of locusts, locust, I carried them off as booty to Assyria. These are cities, the dust of Susa, of Madaktu, of Haltermash, and other cities, I carried it off to Assyria. In a month of days, I subdued Elam in its whole extent. The voice of man, the steps of flocks and herds, the happy shouts of mirth, I put an end to them. So if you're in this time period, you don't go defeat your enemy and sign a peace treaty. You destroy them. It'll make you happy to pay your insurance payment this week, won't it? You live in today's society. So God knows the environment, the hostile environment they're getting ready to enter. And his call is you go in and you drive them out. And the ancient men and women that were watching this would have said, yeah, that's what you do. It's a totally different time period. But have we come so far? Because we have child sacrifice and call it women's rights. We have an over-sexualized culture and call it freedom of expression. We have a death penalty and call it justice. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Now here's the question, what about all the innocent people? Go drive them out, what about the children? What about all the innocent people? Here's what we fundamentally have to understand, and I want to show you that it's not just some innocent people. These, these people have some pretty wicked practices. But here's what we also have to understand. No one is innocent. If we get what we deserve, every one of us gets hell. What we read in Joshua and Judges is what we all deserve. If we want fair, God destroys us all. So what we read in Joshua and Judges is a picture of without the grace of God, what we would experience, total destruction. So as we understand Israel, their flaws may be different than ours, but they come from this same rebellious heart. So God's told them, go occupy this land, drive the people out, but they don't do it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. He's gonna keep going. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession. Of all the peoples you are on the face of the earth. Why did God choose them? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. 
that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know for, therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules I command you today. So God tells him, I chose you not because of you, but because of me. And I chose you to be my people. I entered a covenant with you even knowing that you're going to walk away from it. And I chose you because... I have this plan to send Jesus. It has nothing to do with you. So may we also not get the idea that the Israelites are good and all the other people are bad. The Israelites are simply chosen. And it's with these chosen, rebellious people, God makes a covenant. You will have a land. I will set my love on you. I will give you this land and conquer it. Do what I tell you. Follow my commandments. And you will have peace and victory and all will go well. But then we got to go to Judges. Turn your Bible to Judges chapter 1. So Judges spans about 350 years from this time until we get to the time of Saul and the kings. That's the time frame that this book of Judges is going to cover. It'll end in 1050 BC as Saul comes into power. And so remember the call that God had given him in Deuteronomy. You Go take the land, drive them out. I know what's there. Be careful. Don't marry them. Don't set up aside them. Don't live in their cities. Drive them out because I have a plan for you. That's a call in Deuteronomy. Let's look at Joshua chapter 1. After the death, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Okay, Israel, here we go. We're being obedient. We got to go fight the Canaanites. Who shall go up? They asked God. The Lord said, Judah shall go, which Judah is a tribe. It's a group of people. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So Israelites say, God, we have this group of people. You told us to drive them out. Who should we send? God says, send Judah. Send the men of Judah to go drive them out. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites. Did you catch it? Verse one, God who shall go? Verse two, Judah. Verse three, Judah says, hey, people of Simeon, let's go. Now, that can look like, well, yeah, if I'm going to fight an enemy, right, the more the merrier. I'm going to look for the biggest guys. Like if I have a fight with any of you, I'm going to the football team, and I'm getting some of those guys, and let's go. Here we go. Let's do this. Simple disobedience, minor disobedience, but it's the first slip in a total line of rebellion for Israel. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, verse 3, Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. When Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites, I keep wanting to say Perizzites, Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezik. 
They found Anai Bazik and Bazik, and they fought against him. That's the king, and defeated the Canaanites and Perizzites. All right, here we go. We have victory. But remember what God told him destroy your enemy. Verse 6. The king and Anai Bazik fled, but they pursued against him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Yeah, random. And Anai Bazik said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick scraps under my table as I have done. So God has repaid me and they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Notice they cut off his thumbs and his toes. And here's why he's like, yeah, I deserve that. I did the same thing to 70 other kings. That's the time frame we're in here. So it looks like all is well. They're going, they're driving out their enemy, but the problem is, is we have this idea that we'll call partial obedience. Now, parents, if you tell your kids to go clean their rooms and we get partial obedience, what will we call that? Disobedience. See, the Lord commanded Judah to go fight with the promise, Judah, I will do this. Trust me. Judah, hey, send me, let's go. Now again, don't take the high road. Would we not do the same thing? So verse six, instead of destroying them, they cut off his feet and his hands, they bring him back with them. It's a common thing in those days. As I have done, so God has repaid me, he says. He expects it. So God gives them the victory but they did not completely rely on them at partial obedience, which is disobedience. And as we see the slip in Judges, here's maybe how we could look at it, is disobedience leads to apathy, and apathy leads to apostasy. You're like, what's apostasy? Apostasy would be total rebellion against God. Disobedience leads to apathy, apathy to apostasy. So God gives them the victory here, but we're not going to read it. If you go down through chapter 1 of Judges, verse 19, 21, 27, 28, here's what's going to say. They could not drive out internation, the Jebusites, 27. They could not drive out the inhabitants, the Canaanites persisted. Verse 28, they did not drive them out completely. So this call of God is drive them out because I know the culture you're entering. I know the environment you're entering. Israel said, well, let's just defeat them, cut off a few hands and toes and call it good. Partial obedience or disobedience leads to apathy. And apathy leads to apostasy. And as you go down to verse 29, 30, the rest of chapter 1, you'll see a continued disobedience of what God has called them to do. But God, what's the big deal? Do you see the cities? Do you see the cultures? Why would we want to destroy that? Do they trust God? So you, let's go to Judges chapter 2. So Israel has had... Incomplete obedience or disobedience, which is causing them to slide into apathy. In verse 2, God's going to call them on it. Now, the, or verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgad, to Bochum, 
And he said, I brought you out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, quote, I will never break my covenant with you. And I told you, you shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So God calls, he just straight up busts them. He calls them on their disobedience. He says, I told you what to do and you didn't do it. By the way, fast forward hundreds of years, who's David gonna have to fight? A big tall guy, remember? Goliath, what nation was Goliath from? Do we know? Philistines, they were told to drive him out hundreds of years before. If they had obeyed, David and had never had to fight that little battle. Verse three of Judges chapter two. So now I say, God says this, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. So the failure of Israel to do what God had called them meant that the Lord refused to give them victory. And so for the next hundreds of years, there's gonna be this pattern that we'll start to look at next week. But the result of incomplete obedience is years and years of generational apathy that will one day lead to a group of people completely turning their back on God. Hill City, here's what you have to understand. Apostasy or total turning away from God is a slow slide. It is a subtle slide. It is one little decision. Hey, Simeon, let's go fight. One little decision that leads to another decision and another decision and apathy and eh, to completely walking away. And for those of us that have lived a little bit, we've seen this play out over and over and over again in the lives of people we love. Here's the deal, guys. Um, anyone ever known a pastor that falls really bad? None of those pastors gotten into ministry to say, you know what, I'm going to really screw up my life. I'm going to wreck my church. It was little bitty decisions that created little bitty decisions, created apathy. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, you guys read his stuff. There's a great book that C.S. Lewis wrote called the Screw Tape, the Screw Tape Letters, and it's a fictional book that's set in hell. And this book is made up of a series of letters from a senior demon called Screw Tape, and he's writing to his nephew called Wormwood. Now there's so it's set in hell. It's all fictional. Screw Tape is the 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 kind of the bigger demon. He's writing to this little nephew who's learning how to start to cause people to sin. And, and this nephew, Wormwood, has a, a human. His only responsibility is to get this human to fall, to sin. And this human is known as the patient. That's what he's known. So Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, whose responsibility is to get this human called the patient to fall. Now, Wormwood has written to Screwtape, and he's frustrated. He's like, I can't get this guy to fall. Like, I keep trying to, to bring these big things on him, cause him to cheat on his wife or, or steal a bunch of money, and he's not doing it. 
And, and, and Wormwood's really depressed because he can't get this human to fall. And we have this letter from Screwtape to Wormwood, and here's what he says, and it's brilliant. So Screwtape says to Wormwood, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. Remember, his goal is to get this guy to fall. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. Enemy's God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Apostasy is a slow slide. And it happened oh so subtly with Israel. Hey, come fight with us. Which brings us to us. If there's one thing that I hope we can get out of this book of Judges is that we would see sin for what it is and we would grow to hate sin. Even the little bitty things in our life. That we would start to see sin as not just separating us from God, but separating us from God and the will and his good and pleasing will he wants us to do that we would start to see God as someone that just requires obedience and not someone that has our good in mind. The goal of the book of Judges is that we would see that God calls us to obedience for his glory and our good. Not for his glory and our suffering. Because at this moment, the Israelites functionally believed if we obey God, this will not go well for us. Do you see God as a giver or someone that requires? Now, if you're new to Hill City, here's what you have to know. Um, silence is your enemy. Not for that kid. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Silence is your enemy. Here's the beautiful thing at Hill City. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to pretend like you have all your stuff together. Because every week, every single one of us on stage confess, we don't have our stuff together. The great, one of the greatest enemies to your faith and obedience is silence. Because in silence is where shame grows. And in silence is where the things, well, if they really knew that about me, they wouldn't accept me. And in silence is where, man, I made that decision last night. I know that's not who I want to be, but I can't tell anyone about it. I've just got to white knuckle it myself. And then two nights later, again. Two nights later, again. See, silence is your enemy. But the beautiful thing about a gospel-centered culture is silence isn't needed because it's not based on my behavior, my faith. It's not. 
Matter of fact, the Bible's going to tell me I'm pretty messed up and I deserve just what all those people in Joshua and Judges get. That's what I deserve. But the gospel demands and calls me to, to confess and repent that I might find grace and I might find people around me that push me to be the person I want to be because disobedience is a slow slide. Apostasy is a slow slide. I've told you this before. Take me out of community, put me in some random place for six months or a year, and I will become apathetic. Take me out of community, out of people that push me, and I will start that slide, and I will, it will be a huge fight. May we start to see God, and may we start to see community in the church as this gift God gives us out of his mercy and his grace. May we start to see sin for what it is, something that separates us from God and wrecks our life. And may we grow to hate even the stench of it, the little smell of it. My wife hates mice. She hates them with a passion. And we, we, she saw my, a mouse in our house a few weeks ago, and she's like on all alarm, right? And so she goes to the store and gets traps and everything. And we're walking through the house about three days ago, and I got that little, okay, there's a dead one here right? And so we just start searching all over the house to find this dead mouth that she poisoned. What if we treated sin that way? All alarms go off. Because apostasy is a slow slide. Okay, Hood, are you telling me I can lose my salvation? No, but what I can tell you is allowing subtle sins in your life that grow bigger may prove that you never actually had salvation that you actually weren't who you thought you were. The goal of the book of Judges is that every little thing that pops in our life would be a red flag to say, I will not allow this to slide me to a place I do not want to go. Because it's a slow slide. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one or he'll love the other, for he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So there's this call of Jesus to not make money our God. And none of us probably graduate college and are like, you know what? I'm going to make money my God. That sounds like a good idea. And build an altar with, altar with a $100 bill at the top of it. We don't do that. But here's where it starts, a longing. I got to prove to my dad that I'm successful. I got to show my wife that I can support her. I got to prove to this. So it starts with this longing. I want respect. And we first start making money, and it's like we hold it in, and there's no generosity. And then we start working all hours. And then we start believing that bigger is better. We just keep getting bigger. And then we start living beyond our means. And then pretty quickly, God becomes a hindrance to our dreams. Apostasy is a slow slide. So he'll say, what do you love? Oh, I love God. Oh, okay. What we love is what we desire, what we think about. What's the thing that you desire that you think about that commands your thoughts and your affections. It's probably what we love. One, one person said, if we want to see what we love, look at our calendar and our money. What do you love? So the goal of the book of, G, of Judges is that we would see sin for what it is and it would cause us to confess 
and to bring others in. Here's what Hebrews 3 says. Take care, brothers. Lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God today. Or fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, and indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. So just to be clear, he'll say, we don't believe you say a prayer when you're six and you just do whatever you want and go to heaven when you die. We believe that the mark of a true believer is that we remain firm to the end, which is why we deal with sin as it pops up, that it would not lead us in rebellion and apathy and apostasy. Let's finish up here. Judges chapter two, verse four. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lift up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of the place Bachim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now it's interesting. It appears Israel's like, oh man, we messed up. Let's go back to God. But here's what we find. Israel cries out to God and they weep, but they don't repent. And we talk a lot here about the difference between repentance or just like randomly asking for forgiveness or feeling sorry. So like when I, here's what Israel's doing. They're sorry they messed up. You know why they're sorry? Because now they, they don't have the land. They're not sorry that they turned away from God. They're just sorry of the consequences they got. And many of us in our repentance, it's, it's really this idea of like, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that the decisions I chose are affecting me the way they're affecting me now. Here's what true repentance looks like. True repentance is not just, oh, I'm sorry, God, I did that. True repentance is saying, God, I turned away from you and I looked to something else for satisfaction. I looked to an idol. And now, God, I, I realize that and repentance is turning. I turn my heart away from that idol, whatever it is, and I'm turning my heart back to you. Now, repentance is not penance. Penance says, well, now that I sinned, I have to do something to make up for my sin, to prove that God, to prove to you that, that I'm who I say I am. So penance says I have to punish myself. I have to feel really bad about it. I have to put myself in a spiritual timeout for a few days and think about what I've done. Repentance says Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. Jesus is the reason I can approach you and I'm gonna rest in his righteousness and not try to create my own. So the call of God is that sin pops in my life, repent. I turn from that idol. I trust in Jesus who's my righteous. I don't have to earn it back. I'm going along. Sin comes up. Temptation comes up. I repent. I turn away. I trust in Jesus for my righteousness. I turn away from the idol. And that's the process of being a Christian. It's believing in Jesus and, and that he's better than everything and repenting and turning away from the idols that would tell me otherwise. That is the Christian life. So our sin in the book of Judges, we enter in some stories next week, is going to be on full display. We'll see incomplete obedience played out for us. Our goal, the reason the elders wanted to go through this, our goal is that we would learn to hate sin and see it for what God sees it. As stealing his glory and stealing our joy. And very quickly in the book of Judges, it's going to become evident that we need a Savior. To become evident, that based on our own devices, we would fail. 
And Jesus is going to come and he's going to pay the price for that and be our perfect savior. So the cross is the ultimate example of God's hatred towards sin, but love for sinners. So here's my question to wrap up. Where is subtle disobedience in your life? Where can you smell it? Are your alarms going up? Or is it, eh, it's not a big deal. Disobedience leads to apathy. Apathy is what leads to apostasy. So today as we receive communion, and we understand that God is faithful. That he's going to be faithful to this group of people. He's going to be faithful to us that he provided a sacrifice for our rebellion. May we remember that I'm forgetful. That I continue to walk away from God and continually need his forgiveness. And may we understand that sin is dangerous. As we receive communion, may we remind ourselves to repent. So today as you dip the bread in the wine, may you remember it's not upon your religious achievements that's getting you to God. It's upon Jesus and his death on the cross. And as you receive that, you may remember the price of sin. And may it trigger in you the smell of sin. And may we repent. Let's pray together.